VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Monday, August the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. So let's ease into the week with a couple of happenings and goings on over the weekend. Congratulations to the St. John's Caps. They beat the CBS Raiders in five games at St. Pat's Ballpark over the weekend. I guess game five was last night. To win the Provincial Senior Baseball Championship. Good for the Caps. And congratulations to Paradise in the U18s. They beat Cornerbrook uh, 9-3 in the championship game. They went 6 nothing in the tournament itself. They're off to Nova Scotia for a Labor Day weekend to compete in the Nationals. So congratulations to them as well. All right, don't look now. We got our first medal at the Canada Summer Games. Way to go, Nathan Luscombe. Won a bronze medal in the pool, competing in the 400 free stroke. It was a multi-class parallel race. A bronze medal for Nathan Luscombe. Brilliant stuff, sir. Way to go. Bring it home. Some medals. Okay, get a load of this. Look, if you make a Canada Games team in any sport, you've achieved some pretty significant heights of athleticism in this province. It's highly competitive, and making one of those teams is a memory for a lifetime for all young athletes. How about this guy? Cameron Pennell. He's, of course, in Niagara for the Canada Summer Games, competing in week one with the baseball team, competing in week two with the volleyball team. I think it's probably very seldom. Now, you'll see someone maybe compete in two different sports, winter or summer, but to be at the summer games, playing in both weeks, one with the ball and one with volleyball, baseball and volleyball, that's a pretty cool achievement for Cameron Pennell. Good luck on both fronts to young Cameron Pennell. Now, I don't know if you're keeping an eye on the Commonwealth Games at all. They're so under the radar. We've had a pretty efficient game. So we're over in Birmingham, England. We're third in the medal hall with 92 total, 26 gold behind Australia and England. And well, good morning. Congratulations to Travis Crickard. We talked about Travis a couple of times on this show recently. He's the assistant coach of the Memorial Cup champions St. John Sea Dogs. No longer the assistant coach, but named the head coach. You know, getting the coach, uh, be a head coach in Canada's major junior hockey league is a pretty big achievement as well for Travis. So that's good stuff. You want to talk about any of those types of issues? Let's do exactly that. You know, I guess Canada won the U18s at the Ivan Halenka. Beats the Swedes over the weekend, too. Always a lot of sports on the go. All right, let's keep going. Good morning to all hands who are battling the wildfires down the Canadian Peninsula. Doing yeoman's work. No real fire suppression done yesterday. The conditions were just too poor. Thankfully, the two larger fires have not combined or merged into one. Some pretty significant fires burning out there. And obviously, taking its toll on the traveling public. And folks were stuck down on the other side of the fire on the peninsula. We hear the reports. We understand obviously they're going through a lot and it's really quite scary when we followed along over the weekend so a state of emergency has now been called extended all the way to Botwood people are told to prepare for potential evacuation thankfully it doesn't look like the direction of fires is bringing it anywhere near the residential communities but the air quality is so poor that maybe just maybe folks if you have what you know copd or what have you asthma and it's really bothering you for instance in grand falls windsor there are some buses that are arranged to bring folks out to uh, the canadian red cross uh, set up out in Dare lake at the hotter memorial arena so it is really quite something so whether you be on this 
this side of the fire, we'll call it, uh, belonged to the Canadian Red Cross or the community-minded groups that helped folks with a place to lay their head and a bite to eat and a cup of tea. And we know for sure the folks that are on the other side of the fire are pretty worried and stressed out. And if you are indeed one of those families or individuals, they'd like to call us and tell us what you see and what you make of, of what's going on. We're happy to have you on the program this morning just to share your own perspective because that'll be quite valuable. We do know also that the potential to be cut off for extended amount of time really puts the steady supply of any perishables, foods and otherwise, puts it in jeopardy. And so now the province has moved the Sound of Islay Ferry. It's now going to be providing some of those goods. We don't know what the update will be for when the highway will be reopened, but it has been a very scary issue for so many people, and we understand it. We'd like to speak with you. The province has also, on top of the state of emergency, put in a fire ban province-wide. I mean, I know there's parts of Labrador where it's been raining quite constantly and consistently, and the fire ban might not be that worrisome to them. Someone sent me an email over the weekend when this was announced by the provincial government saying, so what does that include? Open fires? What is a fire ban? It's exactly what it says. You just can't have a fire. So someone in that, in that same email said, well, what about the propane fireplaces and stuff that people have? I think they're a different thing, given the fact you're not firing any embers off a propane fireplace in the backyard. Unlike if you got a couple of junks of birch in your backyard fireplace or out in the park or out in the woods or in the meadow, so the ban is in place. And then you'll see stories where, you know, the fire department here in this region had to respond to a couple of brush fires and there was a fire at the dump and a couple of fires that people lit themselves, even though the ban has been in place here in the metro region for a while now, and now it's been extended province-wide. So pretty scary times for many people on that front. If you want to take it on from any angle, let's do exactly that. Okay, so we all know and we talk a lot about the fact that there's some significant stresses on the healthcare system, and I think there's already a couple of people that have called Dave to get in the queue that want to talk about it. We've gone on to talk about the fact that so many healthcare professionals are unable to work to their full scope of practice. Whether that be pharmacists or nurse practitioners or licensed practical nurses, you know the story. I read a story this morning about another discipline in healthcare that I didn't really even know was a thing. Why? Because they don't practice in this province, and they're physician assistants. These folks are trained at some of the most notable schools in the country, McMaster University, the University of Toronto, the University of Manitoba. So apparently some 2,000 of these physician assistants are working across the country. There's this, the, one, the story's all based around this one family. There's a doctor, Travis Barron, and his partner, Kathleen Abrio. They'd like to move to this province so they can be closer to Barron's family who live in Torbay. The physician assistant, Ms. Albreo, says, well, I'm not going because I'm not allowed to work as a physician's assistant in this province. They're working primarily in Ontario and Manitoba. But you have to ask the question, how and why, if there are well-trained, accredited healthcare professionals that are able to work in Ontario, Manitoba, and we understand the crunch, and here we have two healthcare professionals, a doctor and a physician's assistant, just waiting to get here, and they can't and won't. Not only because uh, Ms. Abrio can't practice, but it goes on to say that Dr. Barron would be forced to take a 40 to 60% pay cut. I couldn't find the numbers this morning as I rushed through to try to find what they're being paid in the province of Manitoba. So these physicians, and they actually have a pilot program on Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, with their recruitment and retention policy and the monies they're spending on it, and now whether it be doing a pilot with the physician assistants to assist in things like knee and hip surgeries, okay. 
So there's lots of interesting quotes in the news story that I read. So the physician assistants work under the supervision of a doctor and can diagnose illness, develop and manage treatment plans, prescribe medication, perform procedures, assist in surgeries. So this one uh, person says, I can take 30 or 35 patients from the waiting room and send them home without direct physician involvement. Just one more cog in the wheel, one more trained professional that can indeed help alleviate the stress and the burden on the system. So I suppose when we have an opportunity next time to speak with uh, the new Minister of Health Community Services, uh, Tom Osborne, we'll see if this is on the table. Apparently there's been some communication between the college and the government, and of course the Canadian Association representing these physicians, it's just the Canadian Association of Physician Assistants, they wonder aloud how and why they're not in every province, and that's an excellent question, given there's a stressed system across the country, regardless of where we're talking. All right. We've been speaking a little bit about, well, I suppose as much as we can, about the new opportunities for wind projects, and they are all not created equal. We know this to be true. Like even the question of the day, a bit of a generalized one, where a wind project associated with electrolysis and wind and water uh, creating hydrogen for export, that's one thing. A wind farm for a large commercial or industrial application to sell excess power back to the grid is another thing. So they're not all the same. But this one particular proposal in Port of Port, we're anticipating an announcement from Environment Minister Bernie Davis last week, and it came in the form of a news release. The company is going to have to go back to the drawing board to deliver a comprehensive environmental impact statement, and we need more details. And all of that just makes sense. I was also a little bit surprised further in the application, just the enormity of this project and the amount of money is associated with it. So I read an article this morning that says about $5 billion for this one project. In their own application numbers, it's more in the neighborhood of $2.7 billion, but we're talking about billions of dollars. So the company has to confirm the final proposal for the locations of the wind turbines, accommodations for workers, explosive storage facilities, access roads, power lines, substations, all the distances from potential receptors and residential areas and any uh, structures, any buildings. Okay. They also need to uh, develop a project the to evaluate and assess access and proximity to protected areas, private land, mining operations, mineral licenses and leases, recreational and traditional land uses must be identified, along with any potential project redesign, impact on flora and fauna, baseline service for moose, caribou and muskrat, and on and on it goes. And then some really important ones about the uh, geological information, plant storage and sequestration of chemicals produced the project through the project life. This all just makes sense, right, doesn't it? You know, we don't know a lot about these wind projects in this province. And yes, some of the people that make up that committee that went to the mainland to get up close to a wind farm, to evaluate the noise pollution, what have you, and to investigate the negative downsides being put forward by some. Okay, and they've done it. And they did want to pause here, and more, de more details will be offered by World Energy GH2. That's the parent company or the umbrella company that's made this proposal. So this doesn't make the government and or individuals and or folks in the region anti-development or anti-wind. But we must ask these questions, regardless of who the proponent is. Why wouldn't we? Just makes sense to me that we would do that. So they're going back to complete the environmental impact statement and the assessment as noted in the different areas that I read off this morning. That's probably a very good idea. Why wouldn't we do it? All right. Everyone's painfully familiar but the fact that there were some shenanigans and skullduggery at the Newfoundland Labrador English-speaking school district. 
with the allocations of monies and the splitting of invoices, you know the deal. It's spurred on a bunch of criminal investigations. There was one person charged on the Buren Peninsula, but the Auditor General on Wednesday released a report with all the appropriate redactions in place while there's still ongoing criminal investigations. So they took the time and the effort to do that, but unfortunately, apparently, if you highlighted the black bars in the online version, you were able to see the sensitive information. They took it down within a half an hour, but if you have it, and you're concerned with the accountability piece that is yet to be told in full, don't share it. Why jeopardize any investigation? Now, one of the RNC spokespersons, uh, Constable Jeff Higdon, says they don't believe that the report that leaked some sensitive information inadvertently is going to jeopardize any of their ongoing investigations. But in case it might, and you had it, and it was only up for a half hour, maybe just leave it at that while we can get to the bottom of it, and that anybody who willfully, purposefully, lined their own pocket or split an invoice to benefit their buddy or whatever they did which was outside the ethical bounds that all public sector employees should be working under, let's make sure, whoever they are, when the investigation is complete, that they pay the piper. Why not? I mean, we should all be ultimately sick and tired of that stuff. And so if you have that report, just leave it be. A couple of quick ones. How are we doing on the phone to get her going this morning, Dave? So, no surprise, there are many federal government employees who do not want to return to the office. Some of the different representative groups, whether it be PSAC or the Professional Institute of Public Service of Canada, and another couple, one's called CAPE, that's the Canadian Association of Professional Employees, they surveyed the people they represent. And, you know, if I do the rough estimate on the numbers, you know, that was a survey of some couple hundred thousand employees. Significant numbers, just even inside this one representative group of 70,000 workers, 60% of the members prefer to stay at home. 25% would like to do a hybrid. 10% would like to come back to the office full-time. All right, some of it's, you know, some people have gotten used to working at home. And let me start with this, I suppose. If people and their job performance has been evaluated and they've been productive and efficient and a lot of the work they would do even inside the office setting virtually with people in other floors or other departments if you don't need to be at work look i get it and of course people when they save the time the amount of money cost to commute and whatnot of course people are going to feel this way now you may indeed want every single worker back in the office where you can quote unquote keep an eye on them and make sure they're doing what they're being paid to do understood but some of the issues about their, their requirements for a safe return to work have not been evaluated, so they say. And then there was one, you know, sidestep made by a Health Canada manager who said, we'd like to have our workers come back because the subway shop, the sandwich shop close by, could use some more hours and a few bit more money being spent. Look, that's not a reason. That's just not a reason. But what do you make of that, that so many federal government employees do not want to return to the office? For me, I prefer to be in the office. You know, home is where I live and have my downtime. I wouldn't want it to feel like I'd never get away from the office if I'm working in my basement or my kitchen every day, day over day. So it's been a real savior for me to be able to get in and to work in here. During this, you know what? All right, last couple of quick ones. The federal government cannot get out of their own way regarding guns and gun control. I just don't understand how they can't read the tea leaves a little clearer here. So whether it be beginning with putting a bunch of firearms on a banned list, 
and the legislation that they tabled this past spring, talking about the ban of importation and distribution of handguns, it didn't pass. And so now, all of a sudden, because they, they have ministerial ability between Marco Menesino and Melanie Jolie, that they can knock down any permit that's in place or new permits that are being applied for to revoke or to reject all of them, which immediately, well, in two weeks, we'll see a full ban on the importation of handguns. Look, there's nothing wrong with mature adult conversations about gun control in this country. But when the feds decide to start with a banned list, and then they do this while Parliament is not sitting, it doesn't do them and or the conversation any good. The sole—pardon me—the one key focus area, because we can talk about what weapons should be on a banned list, we can talk about banning handguns, we can do all of that. The fact of the matter is, there's been a huge spike in the importation of handguns, about $24.5 million between January and June. About a 52% spike year over year in that portion of one annual calendar year. But we know, and the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs will tell you, that the handgun crime we see is by and large done by people who smuggle the gun illegally from the United States. So the public wants to be safer. And yes, we should have a reasonable conversation about what weapons belong in whose hands. But if we don't start with public safety and do exactly what police and law enforcement agencies know across the country, if we don't spend more money, time, human resources on controlling the border and the handguns that flow into the hands of the criminal element, then what are we doing? You can do all these things concurrently, but the government has been loath to put that on the front burner, and consequently, on the heels of it, politically and societally, we'd be more willing and people would be more open to the conversation because it looks like the government's on the right track with their focus areas. Focus on the border. Then we can talk lists. Then we can talk import. Then we can talk distribution and safe handling and locking up your gun or locking up... Look, that can all happen at the same time. But let's look at the border where the problem is. You want to talk about it? Let's go. Last one, I promise. All Air Canada, boy. So we know there's been all kinds of hiccups and hurdles, whether it be with passports and the airports that are under siege, and Pearson has become a bit of a laughingstock, which is really unfortunate. But Air Canada. So this one story, and has happened to dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of people. So someone got bumped. Rebooked on a flight, whether it be next day, two days later. Like, we got uh, bumped and booked two days later on the uh, beginning of my holiday. But Air Canada is refu refusing to pay some of these claims because they're calling the staffing shortages a safety-related issue. That's not the intent and the spirit of the new p uh, Passenger Bill of Rights. It's simply not. If Air Canada sold you a ticket on a flight that they booked that they put on the schedule, it is not your problem if they can't live up to their end of the bargain. Yes, it would be unsafe for pilots to be in the air for, for too long in the run of a day or a week, but that's not the passenger's fault. So the compensation up to $1,000 should be paid. Yes, it's a safety-related matter, but it's not a safety-related matter given the state of the aircraft, maintenance or otherwise. You sold a ticket, you couldn't offer up the staff, that's on you, pay the compensation. Can you just imagine, you know, we're, are we ever going to see legislation that's tight enough that there's not enough wiggle room and loopholes where they can call their own problems, their own shortcomings, my problem? 
So, yeah, it's a safety issue, but it's a safety issue you created. It's not my fault. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Time for a tune before we come back and speak with you. Today, 1981. This is going out to you, Gertz. At the top of the charts, this fellow was uh, supposed to appear here in St. John's. I can't even remember if he ever came. He was late getting here. I was scheduled to interview him. And I was really looking forward to it, down to the Delta Hotel. By the time we had to go back to the studio, put the show together, he didn't arrive. So I interviewed Juice Newton, who opened up for him that day. But here's Rick Springfield. Welcome back to the show. Just quickly, uh, thanks for the info, Rick Springfield did make it. He was forced to land in Gander because of weather and had to take a cab to town. So the concert was late, but Springfield made it. Also, I made mention of a dual sport athlete of the Cameron Pennell. At the Canada Summer Games, we have another uh, representative of this province at the Games playing in two different categories. Matthew Cornick from Goose Bay. His parents, Vanessa and Duane, are originally from the west coast of the island. He's playing soccer and participating in track and field. So there you go. Love it. Let's go to line number one. Valerie, you're on the air. Hi. Um, Patty, my, my beast today is Marine Atlantic. Okay. And I don't know if this has ever come to anyone's attention before or anything has ever been done about it. I'm in Nova Scotia right now. On the 27th of July, I called to get a reservation to come home. I'm a resident of Newfoundland, live in St. John's. And I do have to come port of Bass Ferry because I have two dogs and I'm in a road trip van. Um, anyway, I had to wait two weeks to get a reservation. Two weeks mm-hmm. to get home. You know, like, that's a long time. Newfoundlanders, well, okay, number one, there's two two sides to this, or two things with it. Number one, you call Marine Atlantic Reservations, they say you can call back a dozen times a day. I mean, you're only tormenting them, and for two weeks, I can't call back a dozen times a day. It's just more than I'm capable of. But um, um, then, you know, you ask them if you can, is there anyone you can call because not to have a priority, they say Newfoundlanders have no priority, but to get a change to this priority, nobody knows a number. You call customer relations, and they say, I'm sorry, ma'am, you have no priority. And I say, but who can I call to change that? Can't give you a number. Finally, they put me through to somebody in administration in North Sydney, in North Sydney who can't even give me his last name when I ask who I'm speaking with. Uh, he t- I ask if there's a, an office in St. John's. Yes, there is. He's hesitant to give me that. I ask for a number. I can't give you a number. You look up the number um, to uh, Marine Atlantic Crown Corporation, and you dial it, you get Marine Atlantic reservations again. There is no way to get through to anyone there to voice your concerns. Meantime, I did ask the girl, I said, don't get me wrong, I have not got an emergency other than I'm here in a heat wave in a van and we're two senior citizens. Um, But um, when you, uh, sugar, um, I'm nervous now. Take your time, you're doing fine. (laughs) Um, Customer Relations, George, BC Ferries. BC Ferries gives the residents of Vancouver Island a priority. They reserve a certain number of seats for their residents. If those seats are not taken in a certain length of time, then they are given to somebody else. Marine Atlantic here will not keep a wait list. They will not take my name and say, look, you know, go to the nearest park, we'll call you, and you come in, and if we have a cancellation or a no-show, you can come. They do not keep a wait list. They will not take your name under any circumstances. Um, 
if I, I did ask the girls on the thing, I said, I don't have a, a, an emergency, but should I have um, a relative who had a car accident and was sick, would I get priority then? No, ma'am, we don't give Newfoundlanders priority under any circumstances. Yeah, just a couple of things. In BC, for folks actually have what they call a commuter pass, just like you might have for the LRT or a bus or a subway. They've got a, a commuter pass to go out to the island, and the number of seats is not huge. And if there's, let's no. just use round numbers, if there's 20, and there's 25 people show up who are looking for their commute back to the island. Only 20 get on in any form of priority. The rest is first come, first serve, like everybody else. Former in the Atlantic, when they weren't operating at full capacity, this was a problem repeatedly. And then you add in the complication for truckers having to share rooms or what have you. But now that they're operating at full capacity and the numbers are quite strong, I'm really surprised to hear it took you two weeks to book passage. It took me two weeks. Now, they have said it's because of come home here. But this same thing happened to us um, prior to, like, prior to COVID kind of way. They say it's because we're in a van and it's high. Come on, it's 9 feet 5 inches and it's 19 feet long. You know, it's not, it's not a massive machine that I got. And, and um, two weeks it took me, two weeks. I'm, I'm going across tonight. They did make one change when I called back for one day. So I'm crossing, I'm crossing back tonight. But BC Series, you've got half a chance. They tell me even, okay, if I was ill and, and had crossed and, you know, took a turn, had to get back and see my physician, I cannot do it. I cannot, I cannot get a theory. Even in the case of family illness, you have to get a letter from the um, person who's ill, their physician, that they're calling family home, and she said, we would try for you then, but even then it would be difficult. I mean, we live on and off that island. If somebody closed the, the highways to Ontario and said, you can't get back for two weeks, there would be holy uproar in this in, in, in Canada. And Newfoundlanders have no priority on that theory to get back and forth at all. And, you know, if the seats weren't used, even if they give you a 24 or 48-hour thing, that if the, seat, if, 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 you know, the seats are not used, um, we'll... Uh, give it away kind of 48 hours before if the seats that we save for Newfoundlanders are not booked. You know, even a length of time like that, but to have to wait two weeks to get back and know that even if something happened, I cannot get back on that island. You know, I can't leave two dogs in the van right here. You know, there's nothing I can do to get a I understand. Back. Just let me ask you a question. Right? So, Valerie, you can't get on a cancellation list or something of the like? There is no cancellation list. They will not take your name. You'll have to keep calling back. And if by some chance somebody cancels and you're the first one to call back after they cancel, then, of course, you'll fit into that slot. But other than that, you cannot go to the ferry. And one time you could uh, go to the ferry and line up and and uh, if there was a cancellation, they'd let people on according to any cancellations. I don't know what happens to these last minute things now, but they say they will not let you into the ferry thing. And maybe that's full. I agree. Like, you know, that okay. but they will not into, let you into the ferry lineup anymore until the ferry before you leave and you have a reservation. Well, that's interesting because this guy who I know full well, uh, he and his company, they travel up via Marine Atlantic all the time. He says, now this is just between me and you. If you drive up to the ferry on any day, you're going to get on if you have a passenger car. Marine Atlantic doesn't advertise it, but he says it happens all the time. This guy travels that route constantly. So I'm not saying anyone should do that, but apparently that's something that happens. Uh, Valerie, I appreciate the time. So I wish you safe travels across the Gulf when you finally get on and welcome home. Thank you. Take good care. All right. Bye-bye.
Yeah, how do you put the priority list of what the appropriate number would be? And I guess, depending on if you are in the hospitality or tourism industry, or if you're waiting for your family members or your buddies, your friends to be able to book passage across, it'll be a different set of circumstances. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, fellow, I think I'm looped in on some emails he sends out about raw sewage up in St. Anthony. And then we're going to talk about the wind energy environmental assessment for the Port of Port prospect right after this don't go away weekdays on vocm it's open line with your host patty daly join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m to noon on your vocm we get people talking welcome back to the show let's go to line number two overton you're on the air hey good morning mr daly morning to you thank you for um, um reading my emails that um that I think might be getting a bit of a bore for you. No, not at all. And like I, I want to say this not only to you, but others who loop me in as a CC or a BCC when you're communicating with government, whoever. If there's not a direct question that I can address, oftentimes I won't reply, but I do see and read them all. I, I thank you for that, sir. I'll give you a little update. I have nothing really to report, except that a few days ago, my wife um, was told that if I didn't want to walk through his it down on the beach and the shore, I should find a new path around it. Now, my wife is a very wise woman. She waited two or three days until that person had left town and gone on vacation before she told me that. Anyway, that wasn't very pleasant. But what I will add to you, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Environment Crystalline Howell, as you know, and the town agree with this approach. And they will not be taking any action to prevent this unlawful discharge. Uh, just one thing, Overton. Describe exactly what we're talking about, because I've seen the pictures and read the emails, but not everybody listening has. So t- describe what you're seeing, what you're experiencing picture. regarding having to find an alternate path around the end of that pipe. Sticking out of the grass at the, at the shoreline, and it's a picture, is a green pipe. At the end of that green pipe, I'm going to describe some colors. There are some brown lumps. Immediately in the picture that, I, uh, that I've now added, added to the footer of my, my letters is the picture of my boat as I'm trying to drag it through this in order to get it into the water from my house just 50 meters away. Now when the wind turns southeast, these brown lumps smell up to my door, my front door of a brand new house. I won't be any more descriptive than that. I think we get it. Yes. Ironic that my house is almost in the same spot where Sir Wilfred Grenfell, 125 years ago, set up his first medical clinic in St. Anthony, just meters from my house, in a house that he had borrowed from somebody in St. Anthony. As we know, of course, Sir Wilfred Grenfell devoted his life to public health and sanitation, good hygiene. I, this letter that I referred to in my email to you from Minister Studley, in it she said, her department is committed to the protection of environmental health and strives to achieve legislative compliance through education and support and or other enforcement action, if deemed necessary. My letter, of course, that you had read, of course, was questioning her as what makes something necessary Mm -hmm. for her to enforce a regulation. 
I haven't got a reply. I think you're due one. Uh, you've obviously done the research on this front. I have not. But the document that guides all of the issues regarding private sewage disposal, water supply, all of those standard issues, inspections, what have you, that's as old as 2004, 5 or 6 or something. Has and that been updated since? That, and, and there were regulations even older than that. Okay. This is our most recent ones, yes, to be by by. I mean, uh, just let me, I'll go one step further and describe this. Can you imagine the close proximity to uh, high tide that the end of this cracked blue pipe is pouring untreated, raw sewage, uninhibited, directly onto the beach and into the water? It's not just the issue regarding smell and what have you, but how in this day and age, when we're talking about complying with wastewater regulations by the federal government, all the monies that that's going to cost and the municipalities on the, on the hook, this is 2022 in Canada, and that sewage is pumping straight onto the beach, and the only thing you've been told in an effort to avoid it is to find an alternate route. I mean, that's just nonsense. It's just like trying to pretend, well, if I ignore it, it doesn't exist. Well, it does exist, and nothing's going to change until someone does something about it, and that can only be the province. Thank you, sir, for putting it so distinctly and so bluntly. What I would add is that and I think this is where the problem lies, is that it isn't the fact that there is one. There are dozens like it. Some don't make it to the beach. Some come right out in the grass. Sure. Some come right out in the trees. In St. Anthony, believe it or not, I, cu- I couldn't believe it. I, I, I mean, I left home 60 years ago to pursue my career. I came back here, I, I thought, to retire. This mess wasn't here 60 years ago. This has been put in since. Well, I can't believe it. You know, just look a little further afield and the millions of tons of raw sewage going into the St. Lawrence River from the city of Montreal. I mean, this is just unbelievable that well, we find ourselves I've, in this circumstance. I've been in the um, sewage treatment plant in Montreal. Okay. I had a very good tour of it probably 20 years ago. I'm quite familiar with the wastewater treatment and the millions of litres that you speak of is an emergency. Now, I've always said that I will not be diverted by Patty. You've done it. (laughs) I know exactly the facts of what you're referring to. And that's, I'm I'm pleased that you're going to share them. It occurs very infrequently and with permission. So, and, and I can write you a little note on it rather than get diverted from my own topic at the moment. Absolutely. Feel free to do that. Anyway, I'll give you the last word, though, Orvton. Go ahead, sir. The, the fact that this sewage comes from the house of a public health nurse here in St. Anthony and a high school teacher, and nobody is doing anything about it, including themselves. They're happy to leave it there. That's what bothers me. Sure, I, I can understand that in full. Now, given the fact we just mentioned federal wastewater treatment regulations, I wonder what your federal member would have to say in relation to these complaints that you're offering to the province. And I guess that would be Goody Hutchings, right? Uh, yes, and I have considered, I have considered um, uh, writing a letter to her. I don't want to get into the words that I'm sure... I would like to hear you talk to the mayor. Or Crystalline Howell. Or Goody Hutchings. I'm happy to speak with either or. And and if you can get round the buzzwords, 
the collaborative efforts and the working most diligently and stuff like that that you will hear and the regional services and just concentrate on the end of this pipe. I would really appreciate your help, sir. I'm only going to ask whether or not they're going to make sure it stops. I would thank you very much for that. I'll see what I, I can do. I will send you some information okay. concerning the wastewater treatment plant that I visited professionally in Montreal when it was brand new. Please do. All right, sir. Thanks, Overton. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, will I take uh, Mark before we get a break? Okay, so coming up, beginning on Wednesday, down at St. Pat's Ballpark, B.C., Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and our province will be competing in the 21U Women's Baseball Championships. Join us on line number five. Is the head coach of TMNL, also the tournament chair. That's Mark Healy. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning to you, too. Welcome to the program. Thanks, much appreciated. So finally get to put away what is a very busy job title and hat to wear being the tournament chair, even though it's not over when they f- the first pitch goes out. But pretty exciting times to have a national championship of any variety, especially for you as a longtime baseball player, organizer, and coach. Yeah, it is, especially after coming off a hiatus from COVID as well. So uh, sure. last, year, last year we were lucky to get an Atlantic championship in, but now that uh, things are in a better place, uh, this is – they, uh, the national championships now for the first time in three years for Baseball Canada, so everyone's very excited. So, And we just wrapped up the Provincial U18s and the Provincial Senior. Of course, we've participated in who knows how many of those, 10, 15, or 20 of those. So give us an idea of the strength in numbers of registration in, in girls' baseball, female baseball, and up to the 21 U's. So, uh, you know, you've probably seen some recent press about the girls' program across the province. So it's, uh, you know, growing rapidly, a huge success. You know, this year I think we're going to push around 700 registered female athletes across the province uh, in baseball, which is awesome to see. Uh, From a provincial perspective, we have two teams at the 14U level, uh, two teams at the 16U level, and now a 21U team. So it's the first time since 2016 we've competed at this event and only the second time ever so well i I mean it's great stuff um hopefully folks will get down and uh, check it out because some of these dog days of summer there's nothing quite like i did pull up against the fence watch a bit of the ball over the weekend nothing quite like a night down in the ballpark what do you want to tell folks about you know give us your sales pitch so they come down and support the locals because the nationals are always exciting it's one thing when you can look across and there's the rival between the caps and the royals or or the barons pardon me and otherwise but bringing in you know us in bc us ontario is all good stuff that we need some supporters in the stands Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, my sales pitches come down. Like you said, there's nothing better than a night at the ballpark. Um, You know, local hospitality from our volunteer and host committee. We'll have the barbecue going. We'll have the Molson Beer Garden open. Um, You know, I think people will be impressed by the level of baseball these uh, young women will put on display. Um, You know, and I think it's uh, nothing better than having a night under the lights and bring the family down. You know, we're trying to promote the full family event. Uh, Wednesday night, I would encourage everyone to come down. We're going to have our opening ceremonies and the home run derby for the women. Um, it's going to be entry by donation to a uh, local food bank, so whether that's a non-perishable item or, or, or cash donation, and we'll have a bit of fun with everybody Wednesday night to get things started. Everybody loves the long ball. <laughs> yeah, everyone digs the homers. You got it, Mark. Listen, congratulations to you and your organizing committee. And please do uh, consider getting down to St. Pat's Ballpark. It begins on Wednesday evening with the opening ceremonies, home run derby, continues all the way through the 14th. Go get him, Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh, very quickly. Uh, and I don't want to detract from your, your event here because I think it's great and I'm going to go down and check it out. What should people know about Jada Lee? 
Uh, so Jada is uh, right now, you know, again, she's at the Canada Games representing the province. Uh, she's on the male or co-ed uh, team, first female ever to do that at that event. So she was named the flag bearer for the province. So they had the opening ceremonies on Saturday pass. They had their first game yesterday. So she'll be taking the mound for Team NL this week. Uh, a little disappointed, obviously, we don't have access to her this week because of the Canada Games. But, uh, you know, Jada is, you know, no other term. She's a rock star um, but at whatever level she plays, boys or girls. And, uh, you know, we wish her the best of luck at the Canada Games. And uh, we'll see her at this event. We're going to host this event again next year. So hopefully she'll be part of it for Team NL next year. Fantastic. Good to have you on, Mark. Good luck with it. Thanks, Patty. Much appreciated. All the best. Bye-bye. That's Mark Healy. He's the head coach of Team NL for the upcoming 21U Women's Baseball Nationals in Pat's Ballpark. Let's take a break. Appreciate your patience, Dave. We'll come back to talk about the win proposal out in port pork Dave's after this. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for your patience. Welcome to the show. Never a problem, buddy. Okay. Um, you know, you got a lot of topics to cover and a lot of things going on. So one thing you don't need is somebody impatient sitting on a chance to uh, use your service. So I might not need it, but I got it. I guess you do <laughs> from time to time. You'll never get it from me. I appreciate every opportunity, be it right away or if in two and a half hours or tomorrow. Well, let me give you the heads up. Because we're up against the news, even if I have to put you on hold, we can make it a two-parter if you don't get where you want to go. So I'll let you start. What do you want to talk about regarding the port-to-port wind? proposal well i guess like most uh we're you know um i I don't know if you'd say surprised by the fact that minister staben came back and ordered the eis um and i mean i guess there's still lots of uh question that people need answered so um probably a good thing that this happens so that you can provide these types of data now a lot of this type of data already exists i guess elsewhere in the world and hopefully comparatively and with what they're going to do here it doesn't lend itself to too long of a process in terms of gaining the approval we've seen in the past exactly how these processes can become quite invasive quite extensive and take long periods of time and in fact i mean we've got countless numbers of projects in this province that have not materialized or weren't given the opportunity because they were abandoned before the actual process was finished my opinion on these types of things be it a green project and a forward looking project of course it's something that we can expect and really need to see more of so i would hope that the government would take the approach that they did with the offshore petroleum industry back in 2020 whereby many projects for everything from exploration to drilling were put off because of the length the duration of the process i guess the the time involved was invasive they were losing in other market regions that they could have been playing so they made sure that the environmental approval process for an offshore drill or an offshore oil activity went from 90 to a maximum of 180 days. Well, it's my opinion that in light of such a, you know, an initiative as this, which kind of puts especially southwest Newfoundland at this point now in a a position, a very forward-looking position to be probably forefronting on a bludgeoning and blossoming in- industry that's about to happen with green ammonia, green hydrogen, 
all of these initiatives that we we see and we we like the buzzwords for yeah i don't know how much this is going to dissuade anybody on this front because i'm not surprised this was the end result on friday because the initial assessment that we were anticipating being really or the company was anticipating being released from even in the company's own documentation it didn't deal with the entirety of the project it was only about a third so there was no choice here i mean not every wind project will be created equal either because if we're talking about baseline survey for moose and caribou and muskrat impact on the environment like even flora and fauna it's going to be different port to port than it will in our than it will be in, I say Burgio all the time, in Burgio or where have you. So some of the questions that are yet to be answered in full, if we didn't, then for something that would be so new to the province, we would really... I think be showing ourselves as held captive by any investment or any potential job creation and expansion of the tax space because these are very fundamental questions that they're asked to evaluate you know impact with protected areas private land mining operations mineral leases and licenses recreational and traditional land uses my goodness if we didn't do even those bare bones minimums then we'd be just kind of proceeding and flying blind wouldn't we i have to agree and my point about all of that is that okay um how would, how much depth do they put on each burden of proof in the proving process? Well, I guess that could be basically mitigated to be somewhat correlate to what's going on with an offshore oil industry uh, project. I mean, it'd be hardly, I think, uh, hardly acceptable or, or, or competent on part of government to allow the process to be any longer. I mean, if we're going to allow a quick passage or, say, an expediting of the process to gain offshore oil permits, then it certainly should not be any longer for a green project, which we're looking at now becoming, I'm I'm sure, going to be a lot more of these in the future. I mean, as a result of the Port-a-Port one now, uh, there's another company that's been looking at making an investment in the Port-a-Basque area to do the exact same thing. But they're, And they've actually filed. As, by the way, so has World Energy, I'm told, that they have already filed and, and quite some time ago. Some of the studies are ongoing now that are actually asked for in this EIS process, such as the bat study, moose, uh, hydrogeological information, this type of thing. So that's ongoing. So hopefully that will be included in the time frame in the process process of approval because I honestly think that you know it's not in anything less than 100% government's role and its responsibility to see that these things don't proceed foolishly but also to be able to see that we're not projected on the on the forefront of the globe who may be looking at us now for the potential as being, you know, a leader in this industry and to push that opportunity away because sometimes the length of the process and the, I guess, the frustration of the process could be enough to make especially a private company look elsewhere where this is possible or whatever. Hopefully, you know, uh, this doesn't impede the process looking forward availability of land wind access to water deep water ports proximity to market we got a lot going for us on this frontier let's do it right and we also always have to be cognizant of the fact that if it becomes too cumbersome and burdensome and financially restrictive then companies may look far afield but our our list of boxes that we've got checked off the five real upsides i I see the province has as an offering i uh, I think the company understood full well before the announcement on Friday. They were going to have to do more work. Of course they were. Anyway, Dave, anything else before we say goodbye this morning, sir? Well, about the only other thing that I'd have to say this morning is I'd ask Minister Staben 
uh, and the government in general to see to it that this process does not become too invasive, too extensive, that we actually see this project out the door and to stay in tune with it. I mean, obviously, if they've expedited the process for offshore drilling, which is an industry we're trying to move away from, apparently, and they've made that a streamlined process down to 90 or 180 days, then it certainly shouldn't be any longer for a green project looking forward and uh, the potential of those coming behind it. Appreciate this. Thanks, Dave. Thank you so much, Betty. Take care. Bye-bye. I was watching a bit of uh, the Women's AIG uh, British Open golf over the weekend, and in Scotland at Muirfield, and just about, well, every second camera angle, you can see the wind turbines in the background. And apparently, Scotland produces 25% of the wind energy that Europe consumes. I didn't know that. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Eric. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? Uh, not so good. Uh, I was scheduled to go for a surgery this morning. I have cancer. I have to uh, lose a, a, a kidney and uh, whatever ductwork goes with that to the bladder. And I was called and told it got canceled because a Premier Fury needed my bid in case he had to evacuate the town of Grand Falls because there's a fire down on the south coast. But if I didn't know the Premier wasn't aware there was a fire, I would have called him a couple of weeks ago so he could have dealt with it back then when it was out of control. I, I, I to wake up this morning knowing that the Premier knows there's a fire and he had a news conference up last night about it. Like, while he was flying around in an helicopter going to all these festivities and these festivals come home here, I was home suffering, worrying mentally about getting in and getting my surgery. Then all of a sudden he decides he's going to stop cruising around in his helicopter and going to these festivals and deal with a fire that's 15 days old that's out of control. I just don't get it. I like that some answers from somebody who would know, somebody in government, somebody somewhere. Uh, I, you know, just I'm to make sure. From, I'm from Harbor Britain. I, I, you know, uh, the fire is burning in my region. Uh, Grand Falls is the service center for the entire South Coast, and uh, I spent years as a mayor down there in Harbor Britain. And of course, we work together. And, and even now at Grand Falls, I understand there has to be a plan in place. But what would you wait two weeks to put a plan in place that was for a fire that was out of control two weeks ago? I'm just frustrated with the system and knowing that my, my doctor's office called me then and said my appointment's been canceled. They're sorry. They'll get me an ASAP. My doctor goes on vacation uh, two weeks from this week, and this was his only day that he could do surgeries in the city of St. John's. I'm not in Grand Falls at the hospital. I'm in St. John's waiting. Okay, right off the bat, I'm sorry to hear about your health woes, of course. I don't know or understand the exact process for how and when and what has to happen for a state of emergency to be either requested or to be imposed. I don't know. So, and I'm not 100% sure what you mean about the Premier doing other things while not calling a state of emergency. Is it something that's requested by the folks in charge with fighting the fires? Or was it the potential for the fires to merge, those two big ones into one big one? Was it based on air quality? Like, I don't know. I'm not asking you the questions. I'm just asking out loud because I don't know what goes into that call. Yeah, me either. Me either. 
But the fire's been burning out of control for two weeks. We've had people down there sleeping on the roadsides in their vehicles uh, trying to get through. Uh, right now, I think they got a ferry that can hold 34 people at a time uh, going across and making a trip from, I'm going to say, Bay Largent to Pools Cove or wherever, just to get people back on the south coast because they've been so long waiting to get home in their vehicles. Yeah, they, they moved that uh, Santa Valle, and I thought it was for more for the provision of goods and foods and the like, but if they're moving people in and out too, obviously that's part of what the ferry can do. So yeah. I don't know, but what I'll tell you what I am going to do is to try to find out, whether it be from Minister Bragg's office or the Premier's office or whatever, or even the firefighters and that crowd, to tell me why and how a state of emergency is called. Because I think that would be helpful information for me, then I can share it with you and other listeners. Because sometimes it kind of feels like it's just when someone thinks it's required versus there's an actual written process as to what we need to see, what the risks might be, health, uh, pardon me, air quality and or all the way to proximity to community with the fire. So I don't know, Eric, but I sure hope you get in and get attended to in the hospital as soon as possible, sir. I do understand. I do understand, you know, there has to be a plan in place. There has to be backups. And, and you know, I know there's people in the hospital in Grand Falls. It's a town of Grand Falls should happen to catch on fire or portions of it. They have to evacuate the town. I mean, you know, it's total devastation. We just seen it a few years ago in Fort McMurray. Sure. You know, I don't want Grand Falls to be another Fort McMurray. Uh, Grand Falls, I have just as so many friends in Grand Falls as I do in my hometown of Arbor Britain. You know, this is where I spent most of my life in the region. And uh, I don't want to see anything happen. It wouldn't make any difference if it was part of the province that I'm not familiar with. It's still people. It's still people's homes and everything people work for. But, like, I wish that somebody would have stood up to this maybe a couple of weeks ago and it didn't have to get out of control. And all these other measures like canceling cancer surgeries and stuff for for the what ifs. I mean, if they, if we were transporting people today and my bid was needed for someone who's in Grand Falls on their deathbed or needing my bid in St. John's Hospital, you know, I'd be frustrated still, but I'd understand it a lot more. No explanation. Your bid has been taken away from you. No surgery. Someone will call you with a reappointment. Okay, so you're told that this is directly related to the state of emergency call? I was told from the operating room at the Science Center, I have a recorded message left on my phone. Uh-huh. I, I don't want to play it on here for you, but a nurse from the OR called me, and the exact words were, the, the, the state of emergency canceled your bid, canceled your surgery and taking your bid. So I got this message here. If somebody wants it, I can bring it down for your station and you listen to it. I just don't want to put it on. No, I understand, Eric, and I'm not trying to pry into your own personal stuff. No, I no, just... And I don't mind telling you. You know, I tell you anything. I got nothing to hide here this morning. The only thing, like, for me, this is a mental issue as well as a, as a medical issue because this cancer inside of me, this is my second bout of cancer in three years, and my last cancer was very unfortunate. I had stomach cancer. I lost my entire stomach. I had seven tumors. I went back from my checkup. The cancer was free. I peed, I peed a bit of blood weeks ago, and I thought I had kidney stones. wasn't no big deal. I didn't think anything of it. It happened again. I went to a doctor, and he said, you got kidney cancer. You know, so like twice in three years, it's bad luck. And then the fire thing in Grand Falls and, and on the Beta Spear Highway, and then my surgery getting canceled. Like, I've been living with this in my head. Oh my God, I got cancer again. You know, spread to my kidneys. Will it go to my lungs? Will it go to my liver? You know, it's a mental issue as well. I understand. Yeah, absolutely, you know, Eric. I, I have some answers, and you know, to can't only day that my my doctor, the only day that my doctor had to do surgery on me in the next 
three weeks minimum was today, and it got canceled on me in the last minute. I went down, done my pre-admission on Friday, got everything done. It was all good to go. Had to be back there for 6 o'clock this morning. Then I got called, don't come in. Your surgery's canceled. I tell you what, I'm going to ask Eastern Health about the relationship between the State of Emergency Call and Central and surgeries here in St. John's. I'm going yeah. to ask the ministers responsible for forestry and under the Premier's office about the processes followed before a State of Emergency is called. We know that things like requesting help from the province of Quebec, we have to instigate that. Requesting help from the federal government, we have to do that, which I guess we've did, and Minister Bill Blair responded. But I will ask those questions. I will get that information, Eric, and I wish you nothing but the very best. I thank you. And, you know, it's not only me that's canceled. I I understand. that, that got cancer too, and I'm concerned for them too. But right now, my main concern is for my mental health with this cancer inside of me, wanting it out. And you know, and I, and I, I like I think about everybody that's going through the same thing I am. Thanks, Eric. Good luck, sir. Thank you for your time. Take good care. Bye bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Jeff's in the queue. He wants to talk about what is all too common in this neck of the woods: impaired driving. Don't go away. And oops, with no headset issue. Welcome back to the program. Oh, boy. Line number five. Jeff, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, morning to I you. Just wanted to, I just wanted to say I've been listening to open line programs since way back to Ron Pumphrey, and I wanted to tell you, man, you're the best of the best. <laughs> uh, not necessarily a popular opinion, but I appreciate the kind words. Jeff, thanks a lot. Uh, well, uh, I just wanted to uh, talk about an experience I had on Saturday. Okay. So I got up early morning and uh, headed out on my bicycle. And I was in the center city heading east, and in the westbound lane coming towards me, there was a car uh, roaring fast over the line. And uh, as he got close to me, I just uh, raised my left hand uh, and motioned for him to slow down. Well, uh, he stopped and uh, shouted every obscenity you could think of at me. I just kept my head down, kept going. I was, I was a bit terrified that he was going to turn the car around actually and and confront me in a violent way but uh thankfully he went on and uh i just remember thinking uh i had the distinct feeling that uh he was impaired perhaps on a big bender the night before and not yet fit to drive Uh, i got that sense and so i thought i wanted to call in talk about impaired driving fair enough look just a a couple of quick uh observances one day last week, you know, you know, see something, say something. So I was at the Irving Station on uh, Portugal Cove Road. No, not on Portugal Cove Road, on Torbay Road. And so I saw a guy heading towards the drive through the Burger King drive through in behind the, the station itself. And it looked like he was very unstable behind the wheel came out and there was a young fella on a bike whose back wheel was just in the drive through lane on Pan Exit but he drove right through the bike so I was like okay well this guy's he's hammered and someone that right in front of the store itself I could see them go for the phone I said you calling the cops he said I'm calling the cops yesterday driving around with my wife to go to uh, visit uh, some friends and three times between I'll, I'll just say within a seven minute drive the distinct waft of weed smoke coming in through the air conditioning was unbelievable so so it's out there we see it all the time we hear the stories all the time it was just one time i, I think somewhere late june uh, a few weeks ago where the uh, fellow was convicted of impaired driving cause and death got less than two years in jail so these stories happen all the time around here well that's a good uh, a good point about the two years less in jail because 
You know, at one time, and probably you've even heard your parents' generation talk about how um, impaired driving was a commonly accepted thing. And then, uh, of course, uh, regulations came in force, and then uh, they tried to clean it up. And now we're in 2022, and we know how much devastation impaired driving has caused uh, the public. And yet the sentences still remain very, well, what I would call lenient. And so I think as time goes on and we know more about it and it's uh, less accepted that the sentences should become uh, stiffer, the penalty should be stiffer. That's my opinion. Yeah, I don't think you'll get anyone to disagree with. Like, for instance, if you were behind the wheel, over the legal limit, struck and killed somebody, whether it be a pedestrian or an occupant of another vehicle, less than a couple of years in prison. And I, I have a friend of mine who lost a, her, her uh, niece some years back in a road racing incident. The fellow behind the wheel eventually did something in the neighborhood of eight months. That's it. The girl is dead. So, I mean, I I'm know. not so sure. And, you know, impaired driving... You wonder how often it happens when people simply don't get pulled over. And wonder also how much of it is related to alcoholism versus simply someone had a few after the game or whatever and got behind the wheel and blew point zero nine. There's, I think, some large questions to be asked. Well, there are. And, and of course, there's, there's a sliding scale. So you have people who are, are out for a few drinks, maybe just a bit over. But then you have others who are absolutely um, way over the limits and uh, are reckless. So, so those things can be considered when, when it comes time for sentencing, obviously. But uh, I just wanted to mention, too, that uh, in the news last week, um, we saw that uh, that case of, I, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, I think it was Brad Caravan. And uh, there was a kid from CBS who's finally charged after uh, a long time. I think uh, the accident was in April. And uh, they finally charged a uh, 23-year-old uh, uh, Joshua Burt from CBS with yeah. uh, impaired driving. Saw that. So, so it's something that, although um, is is not accepted, it seems like in here in Metro, I think probably all over the island and, and maybe in the Levitt or two, we have a, a major issue with impaired driving. Yep, I don't think there's going to be much the way arguments coming your way on that one. So I got two more points, and okay. that is uh, number one is enforcement, uh, and I really believe that uh, we are lacking in traffic enforcement. Now the RNC say that uh, they have a uh, staffing issue; they have a shortage of uh, human resources, and they just can't—they uh, don't have the resources out there for it. But um, out out there now, I, the roads are, in my uh, life. I feel like right now with distracted driving, impaired driving, reckless driving, I can't remember a time when it's been worse. And I see very little enforcement. Let me ask you a question. Have you, do you know anybody who has ever given a ticket for distracted driving, i.e. texting and driving? I know one person. Okay, I don't know anybody. But I can tell you, uh, and I ride my bike uh, uh, almost uh, exclusively this time of year, <laughs> I see it everywhere so it's it's one of these things that everybody it seems to be doing but i don't know one person who's gotten a ticket yeah i i know one and it was for a cell phone he wasn't texting but he had it up to his ear and got pulled over uh, I, I tell the anecdotal evidence that I see all the time like if i walked down mcdonald drive one day would i really was paying attention to it 
round numbers if 100 cars drove past me while I was walking down one stretch of McDonald Drive from Torbay Road to the Holiday Inn if 100 drove past 45 were on the phone right yeah and that, that's that's what I'm seeing out there too so uh, you know are the RNC are they turning a blind eye to it they gotta be right I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to know just how many tickets have been written for distracted driving and what categories they fall into because it's not even just cell phones. It's all kinds of things that people do to find themselves distracted. When when you're behind the wheel, you only have one job. I agree, but texting and driving seems to be the most prevalent and probably sure. one of the more dangerous activities. Well, just taking your eyes off the road for a split second can cause, is the difference between being able to stop safely or not. Simple as that. And I'm just going to go with my last point. I'm going okay, to wrap go ahead. Up, but it's it's about it's about what I see. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know, but I see this kind of a growing underbelly uh, in town, at least, of uh, a degenerate type of person that has no regard for any kind of authority or 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 law. And I see that growing. Uh, do you think I'm wrong? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, it's hard to know what role the past two, three years that we've lived under has led to people's, whether it be compliance or abstinence or the respect for authority or the lack thereof or just different changes in their own social circles and their family and their work life. I mean, a lot has changed here. The rebound and recovery in full in the big picture is going to be lengthy and it's going to be extremely difficult for a lot of folks. So it's hard to know how to answer that question without trying to factor in just how difficult the past two, three years has been on so many. You know, not everyone has felt the pandemic fatigue and the pandemic frustration or an increase in mental uh, mental illnesses or whatever, but a lot of people have. So I don't know how to answer the question succinctly because it's hard to factor in what COVID has meant. Well, for me, what I see is just a growing number of people that seem to not care about anything anymore. And it may be attributed to drugs. I'm not sure what the cause is, but I just see a growing number of people with total disregard, disregard for uh, society's norms. They're, they're, I don't know what to call them, antisocial, I suppose. Yeah, and again, that kind of depends what we're talking about. There's, I think there's been a growth in an anti-government sentiment on a variety of different levels. Uh, whether or not that falls into your authority and social norms conversation, I don't know. But uh, I really do think the last two, three years has been has changed everything for a lot of people. And then I think if you factor in how all those changes and the pandemic pressures have manifested themselves online, then it is further complicated the issue, further exacerbated what I will call a problem. Absolutely right. Uh, uh, Pardon me, Jeff, I'm really glad you made time for the show this morning. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Take good care. You too. All righty, bye-bye. There's, I mean, I think he makes a fair point. The conversations are more intense. The polarization is real. Now, the whole bit about, oh, we're such a divided country. (laughs) Really? You know, or is it some of the commentary of division amplified where so many of us spend so much of our time in the run of a day online? Whether it be in the chat rooms, which really foster a lot of ridiculous stuff, uh, social media. So is it really what's happening? Or... Is it just amplified to the nth degree because so many people 
live in some of these echo chambers and it just becomes part of their go-to emotion, their go-to commentary. And the endorphins are flying because someone liked my post or retweeted me or whatever the case may be. So something we said for that. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Calvin, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Morning to you. I'm uh, trying to find some information about those uh, tickets, those games we played in Gandhi, like the Montreal and the Senators. Oh, yeah, okay, so that is as a result of Twilling Gate win in Hockeyville. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I can't get no information on that. How will you get the tickets, sir? How do you go about it? Well, I don't know if they're for sale already. They probably are. So are you live, do you live in Twillingate? No, no. Okay. Well, I, know, been a, I know it's all about Twillingate, but... Well, preference and priority is being given to Twillingate because, of course, that's the community that won it. Oh, yeah. But yeah, the, George Ho- the George Hawkins Arena is not up to hosting an NHL game, so they're going to play it at the Steel Community Center in Gander, which I think right. is early October sometime, is it? Yeah, uh, I think it's the 5th of October. Okay, very good. So how you get a ticket, I really don't know. Have you gone on the Hockeyville website to see if they're selling them there? No, I haven't done that. Call the Steel Community Center. Let me see if I can give you a number for Seal Community Center in Gander. Because they'd know. I mean, they'd be the people that would be selling them. Seal Community would, yeah. Center, Gander. I, I think the tickets are free. Yeah, but Twilling Gate gets priority. So how you oh, get in the queue? Yeah, that's, that, yo, that, that's understandable, right? Yeah, okay. So here's the number if you want to call the Seal Community Center. They'd have ticket information, I assume. Yeah. 651? Yeah. 5927. Okay, sir. Appreciate this this morning. Good luck with it. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, so the Senators actually look like a pretty good club. They've polished up the lineup a little bit. Of course, Montreal coming off a completely desperate season. Maybe have improved a little bit here in the recent past. I think Doc is going to be a good player. Okay, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Dr. Todd Young from Springdale. We've seen the stories and we've heard the stories of the impact of the numbers of people going to emergency rooms has had on individuals. Let's talk a little bit about the impact it's had on healthcare professionals. Good morning, Dr. Todd Young. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. So I guess I should include in the introduction Main Street Medical and Springdale and Medicura. We're going to talk virtual health here as well. Okay, so I'll repose the question to you. I hear the stories about wait times and aggravation that patients are feeling in the community of Springdale where there's a population of less than 3,000, but emergency room visits were almost 6,000. What's the impact on the healthcare professional? I think in general, Patty, we're seeing, uh, you know, I mean, we hear about this in the media all the time, of course, with, with uh, you know, nursing fatigue, uh, physician fatigue. I think, just, you know, the double whammy, of course, is we just don't have many boots on the ground when it comes to physicians. So, you know, we're seeing um, certainly limited resources, but uh, people still need care. So those numbers uh, that were published certainly weren't any surprise. You know, those numbers in itself, some people may say, oh, that don't seem like very many over a year. But we're trying to maintain inpatients and maintain some level of primary care service, and we're doing a bunch of other stuff as well. So, uh, yeah, so so those numbers are high. Uh, people still need care, but uh, you know, uh, I know at our facility, uh, the nurses and uh, and myself and uh, uh, the other physician who is helping out is uh, we're all quite uh, quite tired. But you know what? We'll we'll get through it. So. 
Is this, you know, there's nothing easy in this world when we're talking about the complications associated with healthcare. But do you think the driving force is what I think it is, is the lack of access to a family doctor, consequently to get a prescription refilled or something quite minor, I might end up in the emergency room versus the ability to make an appointment with my GP. What do you think the driving forces or factors are? Yeah, so, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, what we're seeing come through Emerge now are, you know, things that we would never really see before, very simple things uh, that, that should never present to the Emerge, you know, refills or, or just run-of-the-mill stuff. Um, and we're also seeing, you know, people are presenting sicker. So, you know, chronic disease, if chronic diseases are not managed properly, diabetes, heart disease, cholesterol, those types of things. I mean, we know that complications will come from that. We're seeing that patients are presenting uh, more acutely ill than ever when it comes to their chronic disease being destabilized. What that does, of course, it uh, you know just complicates the the uh, the services that are provided, and then oftentimes leads to admission. So, uh, if you present sicker, most likely you're going to have to get admitted, and then there's a lack of beds everywhere. So it's a bit of a um, you know, the, the spiral. With regards to, look, primary care, whether it's from a nurse practitioner, physician, um, it just, it, if you don't have primary care, uh, things fall apart, and that's what we're seeing. Is it a straight up human resources numbers of graduates whether it be from nursing school or mons med school or their training associated with nurse practitioners or lpns is it straight up a human resources issue or do we have a more complicated uh, problem regarding the way emergency rooms and clinics are operated and the where the authority lies and where we're seeing diversions that could be avoided i mean is it simply as straight up as more people that are healthcare workers probably alleviated or is it more than that I think it's twofold. I mean, right now, of course, you know, I'm all about collaboration and, and uh, working together and, and, and those types of, of frameworks. And again, that the province is going that way as well. You know, I think though we're a little derailed down that you know it, we're just trying to keep afloat. So right now, it is a human resource issue, and uh, you know, and we're working with a re- human resource shortage in a climate where everybody is short and uh, so you're, you're competing for numbers in a very small uh, pot. Uh, with regards to you know how it's frameworked and collaboration and all those things, yes, that those are still relevant and they need to be put into place. But again, we need basics first, we need boots on the ground. Uh, Dr. Young, this one I think uh, is symbolic of what I would consider probably the toughest job, certainly the toughest bureaucratic job in the province would be Dr. Megan Hayes. And to come up with an approach and different policies and practices for the recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals. I know it's different to recruit someone to Springdale than it is St. John's and it is the St. Anthony or to Goose Bay or what have you. But if you had, if you could bend the minister's ear and Dr. Hayes's ear and Dr. Parfrey's ear about just the straight up recruitment issue, what do you think would be a place to start where we're coming up short these days? It has to start at the well. So there's immediate needs and long-term care needs, long, long, uh, long needs. So I just think you know, right now, uh, I think reallocation of some workforces that are throughout the province, uh, and you know, just getting some buy-in with regards to helping out throughout some of the regional sites. I think it could be a possibility. But the bottom line is, any new grads that are coming out, I mean, whatever it takes to kind of get them to stay in the province, I think uh, needs to happen as well. Uh, you know, we're having a, a change in workforce as well, Patty, and I think that is something that uh, we need to uh, realize. I mean, 
I work way too much. Uh, I know that, but that's kind of the way my generation often works uh, is, uh, you know, I don't have really a lot of balance. Newer grads that are coming out, you know what? They, they, want, they don't want to be working 60, 80, 90 hours a week and on call all the time and things like that. So the, the system needs to adapt to what are they willing to offer. And I think that's where the flexibility really needs to come in. Yeah, because I would imagine for the healthcare professionals that I know, it's not the money. It's just not. No, they no, don't talk not. about money at all when they talk about what they think is making them yeah. feel overwhelmed and overburned and overworked or what have you. So, you know, yeah. look in the province of British Columbia. They're paying second years, third year money. They're dealing with some debt forgiveness based on your enrollment in a med school in the province of British Columbia. They're doing different things. I know we've got some things out here, $800 additional per day for a doctor to take on an emergency room shift. And, you know, for a family doctor who takes on a three-year clinic with a full patient roster the bonus that's coming down the pike there of 100000 that all that's fine, but that doesn't mean that person won't be burnt out. Well, and it doesn't mean that there's a direct match between what they want their lifestyle to look like uh, while they're working uh, and compared to what the expectations are from taking some of those bonuses. Sure. Uh, a couple of quick ones before we go. I read a story this morning about the couple of thousand physician assistants that are working in the country. They're trained at notable universities like McMaster, University of Toronto, University of Manitoba, primarily in Ontario and Manitoba. They are not a recognized health professional here. You know, I'm not going to ask you to answer on behalf of government, but if indeed there are trained healthcare pros known as physician assistants, I mean, how and why do you think we're turning blind eye, deaf ear to these? If we had, if they're graduating 70 years, if 10 of them made their way here, I'm sure you wouldn't mind having a physician assistant taking some of the uh, patients coming through your clinic. Patty, I've been asking for funding for a nurse practitioner for six, for six years now and still mm. haven't been able to get one. So, uh, yeah, look, uh, when it comes to physician assistants, I've worked with them in Ontario. I went to McMaster. I know that role very well. They've been in Ontario for some time, and they, they train a lot every year. I mean, it's a, again, it's a, it's a role that uh, I would embrace and uh, wish we had that option here. I think it would really help us. What role does virtual care offer uh, to the everyday patient out there? because I know you're one of the people behind Medicuro. Some people think that I've, I can't reach out and touch the white-coated doctor, then I'm not getting the kind of attention I need. Where are we with virtual care? Where can we go? Give people who are really hesitant to even consider it as an alternative reason to maybe put it on the front burner for maybe just have a little closer look at what, what virtual care means and what it can mean for them. Yeah, so, I mean, we're seeing higher volumes of requests than ever. Um, you know, some, it's, there's some interesting things that have been happening as well. I mean, you know, 811 can fill a gap for lots of things. Uh, you know, some walking clinics are certainly filling the gap. You know, people that are have been on medications, though, for uh, a long period of time, which would be include treatments for ADHD, some people that are prescribed medication for chronic pain, those patients are really, really struggling, right? So, um, uh, and, and again, some of the rules around prescribing can be, uh, can be quite restrictive. So we're, we're seeing a lot of people that are presenting now just saying, you know what, I can't get my medications refilled uh, despite being on this for 10 plus years. Uh, so so there's, there's that part. But with regards to virtual care, virtual care, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to see how things have developed over the last year or so in the level of acceptance. Uh, Myself and a couple other staff, we just did a, uh, a survey of uh, all patients that we saw virtually post-pandemic, so after March 25th, 
and uh, we're hoping to get uh, some of those results published. But I mean, when it comes to just the financial part alone, so, you know, 98% of people didn't need to buy any new equipment or software or anything. 98, 99% of people said it actually saved them money for travel. And then we still had, you know, 96% that thought that their visit was just as valuable as, as in office for, for the complaint that they presented with. So, you know, we've got a, uh, so virtual care is, is here to stay. Uh, you know, we're just part of, of the many options that are out there for virtual care. But, uh, you know, come September 1st, uh, we will have a fully collaborative clinic. We have an optometrist coming on board. We have a pharmacist. Uh, we already have a naturopathic doctor. I've just recruited three more physicians. And you know what the selling point is in recruiting people, Patty, has been, look, I want you to be happy as a provider. You tell me what you want your day to look like and, and, and the flexibility and all those other things. And and those things are appealing to to professionals. So, you know, virtual care right now is is a, an option that we're that are that's augmenting other people's um day-to-day practice but i think you know more and more are actually seeing that it actually fits your lifestyle as well as a provider really appreciate your time as usual dr young thank you thanks patty have a good day you too take care bye-bye it's dr todd young out main street medical in springdale and of course virtual offering through medicuro let's go ahead and take a break when we come back we'll talk about forest fires healthcare shortages and whatever else is on david brazel's mind right after this welcome back to the show let's go to line number one say good morning to the pc member for conception bay east bell island he's opposition leader as well that's david brazel good morning david you're on the air Good morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for this opportunity. Happy to I want to start first by, you know, uh, letting the people of Central Newfoundland and surrounding area know that our thoughts and prayers are with them uh, as they face these challenging times around the forest fires. I had a uh, good conversation with my um, forestry critic this morning, who's also the member for exploits, Pleeman Forsey, and he's on the ground working very closely with the mayors out there and the government officials and all those firefighters who are so bravely and diligently trying to contain the fires. So we're hopeful that with extra resources and Mother Nature cooperates that uh, it gets contained and it minimizes the impact on people, particularly in some of those areas, the most vulnerable, who may have to be evacuated and moved to a facility on the West Coast. So, you know, I I do compliment all of those involved for being, uh, you know, planning a strategy to make sure that people are safe here as as we go through it. So, you know, I'm hopeful that Central Newfoundland gets through this uh, challenge and that uh, people are not affected too dramatically at the end of the day. so that's that's one of the, the key things I wanted to note. Well, because uh, and it's it's the only way for us all to think about it, isn't it? Because you know I'll hear lots of people suggest that state of emergency should have been done quicker. We should ask Quebec quicker. We should ask the federal government quicker. All of these types of things. And I don't know the moving parts. I'm not exactly even really sure what the process is for some of these declarations of states of emergency and what poor air quality means, the proximity of the fire to communities. But it's something we're trying to figure out. But I guess the ultimate uh, summary is. People are worried about folks in that area. You know, whether it be the firefighters and their support staff, folks that are stuck on the other side of the fire down the Canegra Peninsula, folks that are stuck, unable to get home, there's a lot of frustration and worried folks out there. And let's hope that some of the weather in particular can turn for the cooler and for the winds to drop down. Because I see a bit of rain here outside my windows. I would give whatever for the rain to be pouring down on those fires and a nice calm day on top of that out in Central. Agree 100%. 
consent. And, you know, Mother Nature has, you know, control over a lot of things we do here, so hopefully she cooperates in this case. The only point I would note, and I've heard it from a number of people, that we may need to make sure the lines of communications are open so that the stress and apprehension on people uh, doesn't get heightened. As long as information is shared and people know exactly what's happening, you know, as it happens uh, or in advance of what may be happening, I think people will be a little less stressed over uh, the situation, and particularly if they're away from central Newfoundland worrying about their loved ones. So, you know, yep. we encourage them to make sure the lines of communications, and I heard a couple of uh, mayors this morning on VOCM talk about the information they're trying to get out, and I know Clemen Forsey is doing the same, and I would hope everybody engaged here are getting the uh, message out to people as quick as possible to know exactly what's happening here. That's all we can do. Exactly. I also want to talk about, and it's, it's ironic that Dr. Young was on talking about some of the challenges in healthcare and, and some of the things they're trying to do to improve it. Uh, you know, I want to get on and clarify a situation uh, in, in my uh, you know, home district, obviously, in the health center on Bell Island. Uh, last week, Eastern Health uh, came out with some information trying to be proactive that uh, for the first time since we lost the four doctors over a year ago, that uh, they were having a struggle in being able to fulfill their commitment for a 24-hour emergency, and as a result, being able to fulfill that they would have a staffing uh, contingent that could cover uh, long-term care patients over there. Uh, And the plan was long-term care patients were going to be moved off of Belle Island and put in the Pleasant View Manor, uh, which in itself, you know, is very stressful on families that are, you know, some of these patients are in their 90s and the families on Belle Island are being cared for with great health professionals who know the client's needs and the patient's needs and, and take care of their, their needs relevant to that. Also, there was the plan was to shut down the emergency to go to 12-hour emerge. I'm happy to say, and I give credit to Eastern Health, uh, we met late, late last week and all through the weekend and this morning in conversations that they managed to secure the uh, contingency staffing uh, right up to the end of August. Uh, they're still now negotiating or, or di- discussing with uh, physicians for recruitment of a doctor. Uh, my understanding is there's new nurse practitioners being hired. So we're hopeful that this was just a, a, a glitch that a lot of people are, are facing in Newfoundland Labrador. We hear it from all over the province here. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to be able to avoid it because we've had doctors fill in for emergency in St. John's and other physicians who volunteered to go there. Uh, and I know it's a challenge with a ferry service net. But on the other side, that's why it's more of a challenge and more important that we find, you know, complement the staff because if something happens in a night in emergency and the ferry service is not working, you don't have a doctor available, the impact that will have on people's lives, you know, is detrimental and we know that and that's, that's the fear. So I do want to reiterate to people over there now, right now, uh, Eastern Health have been uh, proactive and have managed to um, find a complement to staffing to get us through the end of August. Hopefully then they're doing interviews and recruiting that this is not an issue. We've got to look at, you know, here was my other issue. If we're bringing patients from long-term care from Belle Island and putting them in a facility here. We already know we have struggles in our, our, our tertiary care facilities where there's no beds available because there's long-term care patients in those. I'd rather we enhance the long-term care facility on Belle Island so that can take care of Belle Islanders uh, who will need that uh, facility or those who don't have family members from some other part of the province who wouldn't mind going over there to get quality care, quality health professionals as part of what's being done. Something Dr. Young noted that I think would be relevant to Bell Island's health center and a number of other ones is the scope of work 
for some of the other health professionals in being able to ensure that the quality of life or work-life balance for doctors is taken into account, as would be for nurses and nurse practitioners. You know, he talked about uh, prescriptions coming in and emerge. Well, you know, we've got pharmacists that can have that skill set. We've got nurse practitioners that can do it. We have LPNs. We have, uh, you know, uh, the, the other health professionals. They are paramedics who could be taking other parts of the responsibility that would free up the doctors to do some other things. So I think dialogue with the medical association, the nurses union, paramedics, pharmacists, all the key players would open up the opportunity here for us to be able to offer better service uh, with the staffing engines we have and probably eliminate some of the stresses that people are following. I'm not so look, I get the, the overall thought and concept. I'm not so sure paramedics have got much in the way of uh, more uh, opportunity wiggle room to add to their uh, list of jobs uh, on their job descriptions, but point taken. And I think, uh, you know, it's not just healthcare workers. This whole bit about striking work-life balance is not some woke, progressive, lef- lefty, liberal nonsense. This is what every mobile professional in the world is looking for. It's not all about money. It's more about their life. So, you know, and this, whether that be in the tech industry or engineers or maybe some lawyers in some disciplines or talk show hosts, people just need to have a much more manageable lifestyle, not necessarily fully reliant on how much I get paid. Uh, good to have you on, Dave. Off to the news I go. Appreciate it, Patty. Take care, and to everybody, be safe and central. For sure. Thanks, Dave. All right. Take a, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the Liberal member for Windsor Lake. He's the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, as well as the Attorney General. That's John Hogan. Minister Hogan, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Pretty busy, but uh, we're doing uh, doing well, and we're hanging in there. And uh, I just sort of obviously want to comment on the fires and the smoke uh, in the central part of the province and uh, certainly thank everyone for paying attention and listen to what officials are telling them with regards to safety and thank all uh, all the emergency partners who are just working around the clock on this issue right now something that we uh, as people in this province haven't faced since the early 60s so it's been a long time uh, but people were prepared and ready and uh, you know I think we're doing okay so far. Yeah apparently it's the largest fire on the island since 1961 is what I think I read. Okay so I think that the uh, air quality warning has been lifted in Gander so says a resident of Gander, but some of the questions that have been posed on this program this morning are in regards to the state of emergency. What are the processes or protocols or what has to be met for the province to declare a state of emergency in that particular region? Yeah, so there is an Emergency Services Act in this province, so that's what we follow before we declare a state of emergency. And as Minister of, I guess, Public Safety in this case, I have the ability to call uh, to declare an emergency in a region. And obviously, the whole province didn't need to be under a state of emergency, so we limited in this case to the areas of the Niagara Peninsula, Grand Falls, Windsor, uh, Bishop's Falls, and we uh, had to extend it to Botwood yesterday as well. So what we do, we look at the legislation and actually has a definition of what an emergency is, and it's an event, and it can be a real event or an anticipated event. And in this case, I think it was both. Obviously, there's a real event with huge fires to the south uh, in the central part of uh, the provinces south of those communities that are burning. I mean, they're massive. They're over 130 square kilometers, uh, the two of those put together. Uh, So we did have an event that was obviously creating the situation that we had to be aware of and we had to deal with. What we anticipated, and really was one of the reasons that we called a state of emergency, was we anticipated this smoke continuing to to grow and to move into these communities, which could cause breathing problems, which could cause issues with uh, residents there in the hospitals and residents in their homes. And if it got really bad, uh, we may need to lead to an evacuation of those communities. And under that act, there has to be an emergency 
in place before we order an evacuation. So there was an anticipation that these things could happen, and that's why we wanted to call the state of emergency. What it allows us to do right now as the emergency is in place is to coordinate uh, and to plan and to prepare for things. And we do have to deal with the situation now before it gets worse. So that's what's happening. All provincial and municipal services in the area and throughout the province are now really under one operation, and that's the Provincial Emergency Operations Centre. So that's what the emergency allows us to do. It also certainly gives the public a heads up that this is sort of step one uh, in, the, in this crisis situation. Step two and step three could be, you know, gathering your family and your pets and your belongings, and you may have to leave the community. I, we're certainly not there yet, as the Premier said over the last couple of days. This is more of an evacuation notice. Uh, I understand that the weather has favorably changed over the last few hours, so things are slowly improving, and uh, we obviously hope we don't have to take that further step. But that's the basis for the call of the emergency and the declaration that we made. So talk about collaboration, what have you. What does the triggering of a state of emergency have to do, say, for instance, with getting federal assistance and or funding for the aftermath? Yeah, so two different things. Uh, the state of emergency, as I said, allows us to coordinate uh, sort of provincially the provincial and municipal services in the area and throughout the province. So we're doing that. We've been doing that since Friday, obviously, and even before that, there's obviously been communications among the emergency partners. Uh, Friday, I believe, last week as well, uh, I sent a request for assistance to the federal government, to Minister Blair, who's the minister, the federal minister of emergency preparedness. So that's a separate thing. We don't need the emergency situation to ask for that, but we did ask for the request for assistance. I had a conversation with the minister uh, on Friday. Uh, they, he escalated that very quickly, so I want to thank him and the federal government as well. Uh, that request was approved, so that allows us to work with the Canadian Armed Forces, who are now here on the ground. Uh, there's a rotating group of these individuals at the Provincial Emergency Operations Centre who are working on air assets if needed, getting them here from places like maybe Gagetown on the ground here in Newfoundland, uh, on the island of Newfoundland, so we can use them as assistance as well. So the emergency declaration doesn't necessarily tie to the uh, request for assistance. They're two separate things, but two very important things, and it's great to have federal, provincial, and municipal uh, entities involved in this situation right now. Anything else on the state of emergency or the fires before we broach another topic or two, Minister? No, you know, like I said uh, right when we started the call, uh, you know, I, I, I'm amazed with how prepared everybody is for this situation and the, all the emergency partners. Like like we said, we haven't seen a fire like that in 60 years, yet everybody was ready to uh, to act on a moment's notice and to, and to be ready for any and all situations. So uh, I think the public needs to know that, and they should, uh, they should be glad and happy to hear that uh, people are out there doing a lot of hard work and have been preparing for a situation like this to deal with uh, worst-case scenarios if they arise. Inside your portfolio, of course, the justice system in full, but also public safety. Last week, we saw the Stats Canada release their crime severity index. There was a violent crime, a rise in violent crime, some 19% in this province. How do you read those numbers? What's your takeaway? What needs to be done to deal with what we see is now becoming a trend? Yeah, so it is, I think it is fair to say that's a trend across the, across the country, and it's it's something that we're aware of here in the department. We've discussed it with the RNC. We've discussed it with the RCMP. I can just give you one example of what those two police agencies have done is that last year uh, they collaborated with a joint task force on the West Coast to deal with situations like that. So we are very fortunate in a lot of ways to have these two agencies uh, in the province as opposed to just one who can work together to deal with these situations. We've increased the RCMP's funding by 
by $17 million uh, annually in last year's budget. There hasn't been an increase in the RCMP's base budget in over a decade. So that's something that uh, happened under this government. And since I've been the Minister of Public Safety, uh, I'm very happy for that because they need it. We get all kinds of calls uh, about RCMP boots on the ground. uh, And it's a difficult situation across the country to fill detachments with RCMP members. But that $17 million is going to go a long way. And and I think people in communities in this province will see more RCMP who will be able to deal with issues like that. You know, they're, they're obviously high crime, violent issues are important and need to be dealt with, and that's uh, we're lucky to have the RCMP and the RNC working together with us on that. The RNC will tell you that they have more calls coming in than they have resources to dispatch. We're working with the, the Chief Roach on that. We've had multiple conversations about that, and I know he works very, very hard in allocating the resources he has towards the priorities that he sees and what the RNC is responsible for. We continue to talk to him and work with him on resources and what he needs, and I'm sure we'll have conversations with him now leading up to the next budget cycle on that. Uh, it's, it's difficult to apply root causes to some of the violent crime, but you know, if you listen to people who are working down at the courthouse, they will say that you know, some 80% of people coming and going is drug-related, matters or mental health related matters but when we see a spike in violent crime and rounding up these two competing gangs who are printing guns in the whole bit root cause stuff root cause drug related matters and violent crime you know in other other parts of the country in bc look for exemptions for you know uh, decriminalizing small portions small amounts two and a half grams for some of these more illicit drugs because it's it's important to create the task force between the rnc and the rcmp most of that was focused on the west coast but how do you get down to the role that drugs plays in violent crime i mean is there a conversation to be had about decriminalizing small uh, amounts or is there more to be done because the war on drugs for all intents and purposes has been futile and a waste of trillions of dollars. So how do we address the root cause with the drugs inside of violent crime? Yeah, so I guess the, I would say that's two different issues. People that have possession of small amounts are not necessarily the people that are that are involved in violent crime. No, but there's, there's a dovetail there with yeah. where they got the drugs. It's where they got the drugs, right? So, you know, one solution there doesn't necessarily solve all the problems. And you're right, social determinants are a huge part of how people end up in that system, you know, in the, in the justice system, I guess, for lack of a better word, in the first place, right? Is that And it's the same when we talk about the health accord and health in this province. We spend more money on health than anyone in the country, and we have the worst health uh, outcomes. So why is that happening? And it's it's because of social issues, right? People aren't necessarily healthy at a young age. We don't have the best maybe uh, food supplies here. We don't have the best eating habits. We're not exercising enough. Uh, We don't have the best weather, so we're not outside as much as people, for example, in B.C., like you mentioned. So with health, with education, um, with justice issues, it's – always going to go back to social determinants and that's something that we need to work on locking people up and putting them in the cycle and getting them in jail and being there for a year or two years and spitting them back out and then sending them back down to provincial court putting them back in jail again nobody argues that that's the right system and that's going to help us in the long run and help those individuals in the long run so it's something we're always looking at we're trying to come up with ways to ensure that the justice system not only punishes people for crimes that are committed because that's certainly needed in a lot of situations victims of crime want to see punishment in some situations but we look at restorative justice as something we're, we're taking very seriously now in the Department of Justice and Public Safety is, well, what is the right answer for someone who, A, committed a crime, and B, is a victim of crime? Is it jail? Is there other ways to deal with that situation? Is there other ways that the victim might say, look, I don't want that person in jail. I want that person to apologize, recognize the harm he or she did, and maybe contribute back to the community. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that need to be talked about to improve the justice system and not block our jails full of people who we're really not helping by just, you know, throwing them in their uh, 
locking them in there and throwing away the key. Well, that's why we have drug diversion uh, court or drug specific uh, court proceedings. We so, have drug court. We have family violence intervention yeah. court. We have mental health court. We have all these sort of different courts that are different than the system that you know existed when I started practicing law, which is just guilty, not guilty, jail or no jail. Right? There have to be other options, and we're continuing to grow those options throughout the province. I'm not going to ask you to comment on the tact or the approach that the federal federal government's taken on guns. There was a legislation table that did not get passed, but now I guess between Marco Mendocino and Melanie Jolie, they can revoke or to reject all applications for permits to import handguns. But we know full well that they are amongst the favorite weapons inside the criminal element. And the spike in violent crime, we've seen the recent stories. The two little gangs that are sitting on a bunch of guns, people printing guns and what have you. Without getting into the tactical information, what can you tell us about the oversight associated with guns being brought into this province and the whole issue of guns? Because there's a mature conversation to be had, but the number one concern nationally is the amount of legal handguns being smuggled over the border. Not what weapons belong on a ban, not an importation ban, not a distribution issue. What can you tell us about gun control in this province? You know, forget what they just did at the federal level, but that's where the criminals, by and large, that are at risk to public safety, are bringing them in. What do yep. we know? And I think you, the, I think the RNC and the RNCMP would say that there might there be crimes committed today uh, where they're involved and where they do an investigation where they see guns. They might not have seen guns 10 years ago for the same sort of crime, right? So it is an issue. It's on our radar. I've uh, spoken to Minister Medicino about this specific issue and said, what can, you know, we want to do something here in our province, in Newfoundland and Labrador, to deal with this gun issue and to make sure that handguns and other guns like that, you know, aren't here anymore. And we're looking at all options at a provincial level where we have provincial powers and authority to deal with that issue specifically. And we support the federal government in doing everything they can um, to deal with the handgun issue as well, whether it's, you know, the buyback program that they're saying, you can you know, get rid of your guns and give them back to the federal government for, for a fee, uh, banning the importation of handguns, uh, and stopping the manufacturing of handguns in this country. So we're, we'll work with the feds on that, and, and we'll certainly look at things that we can do, because there is an issue with overlap in the Constitution, whether it's criminal matters, which the federal government has jurisdiction over, or property and civil rights matters which the province has jurisdiction over so there is some work to be done uh, and cooperation between the two levels of government on this issue not to presuppose the answer, but I'm going to two quick ones before we let you go. And this one just popped in my head. So on the heels of the LeBlanc inquiry regarding Muskrat Falls, yep. there was some thought of some matters being passed over for further investigation and evaluation, both civilly and criminally. Are there any criminal investigations associated with Muskrat Falls? Yeah, so that was sent. My understanding, obviously, was that was forwarded. The report uh, and the information was forwarded to the RNC uh, for an investigation, a criminal investigation. As you say, they wouldn't do a civil investigation. No. Um, and, and that is still with the RNC. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of information to look at. It's more than just LeBlanc's report. There was mountains of evidence behind that, so that is an ongoing investigation by them um, and can't publicly update uh, on you know how far they are into that or, or if they're any closer to making a decision on that. But it is happening? It's with the RNC, yes. Yeah, okay. It has been since uh, whenever the report came out. I mean, I can't remember the date on that, but... Any comment to be offered about the 10 correctional officers suing the government, the RNC, and the chief medical examiner? No, that's a matter obviously before the courts now. As attorney general, I can't comment on, but the, the courts are obviously there to, uh, to deal with these matters, to address them, and, uh, and that's what they're there for. And uh, I guess I'll just leave it at that. I appreciate your time, Minister Hogan. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's the Minister of uh, Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan. Of course, he's the Liberal member for Windsor Lake. Uh, before we go to the break, let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. 
Yes, uh, myself and my wife left to go up to the cabin there Saturday night, and we left Mount Pearl, and we stopped into Domino's on Commonwealth Avenue, and uh, I put the pizza in the back, but unknownst to me, uh, a backpack fell out, and we drove up to cabin, and in that backpack is uh, all my medication for my uh, heart surgery and all that, and I was really hoping that somebody would be able to uh, find it and... uh, give it back to me one more time where do you think you lost it sir we lost it at uh, Domino's on uh, Commonwealth Avenue in Mount Pearl. If you picked up the bag, it's got things that this caller really needs. So would you like to give out your number? What would you like to do? Uh, yeah, my home phone number is 368-7058. And my cell number is 691-0421. And we'd really appreciate getting that medication back because insurance companies are don't always believe you and it's hard to get all those pills filled again. Yeah, understood. So the home number is 368-7058 or cell phone number 691-0421. Fingers crossed. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go and take a break. Talk away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, um, I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, eleva- an elevator route in a senior's building. Okay. And... Uh, as a new, as a three-story building, is owned by Inno Housing, and uh, the uh, and the elevators been out now. Uh, gave out last Tuesday evening, and that was Monday, and still out. And uh, uh, a lot of people. It's a three-story building, and there's people on the second and third floor who can't negotiate stairs on the wheelchairs and things, and they're you know essentially trapped, trapped in the building, and uh, can't get outdoors. And even people who can negotiate stairs, and a lot of people here, you know, up in years and that, and they, they can't uh, or have a very great difficulty to go down to do laundry or bring groceries up or anything like that. And uh, like I say, uh, this is not a new thing with this elevator. Uh, they were around Canada Day, and during Canada Day, it was out five days. And, um, uh, and, and often, out, I mean, it's not unusual. It's out every now and then. It usually takes a bit of day or so to repair. But now it's been five days before, and now we're going on a full week. And, um, you know, like, like it's, a, it's a great problem for everyone here. It's not merely an inconvenience, uh, say, if it was all fairly well and healthy people living here, you know? I do. And, uh, yeah. So I think what's going on here, David, is, you know, I don't even think this one is on housing. And interestingly enough, we have Terry French coming on, I think, tomorrow or the next day. The 20 or so people in the province that build, maintain elevators and escalators are on strike. So until oh, that, that gets settled, I think you might be out of luck with that particular elevator. We're trying to confirm that the strike is still ongoing, but they did go back on strike on the, 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 either the, like the 21st or the 22nd of July. It's the fourth time in 16 years this group has been on strike. Last time was in 2017. So Terry French is going to come on and give us an idea of where we are. But I think right now your elevator outage is in large part not repaired because the elevator repair people are on strike. Okay, no, I was not aware of that. That's okay, thank you. But uh, and but also, having said that, you know, like I say, is is an old 1970s small elevator, mm-hmm. relatively simple mechanism in it, few few analog relays. I mean, uh, I guess just contracts and all that got to be got to be honored and everything. But 
you know, it was certainly not a complicated fix. I mean, in my opinion, anyway, right? I mean, one out of every 10 people walking off the road and repair that, you know? Yeah, sure. I bet uh, you there's liability associated with it, though, to be honest. Yes, yes, I suppose, yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, but I, I just wanted to voice my opinion. I, I mean, people here, I mean, like I say, seniors and that, and they don't have a lot of resources, and they're having a pretty hard time, but, you know, some people, right? So, anyway, I just told I wanted to go call in, voice my opinion on it, you know? I'm glad you did. That's why we're trying to get a bit more information about what's happening with the strike, you know, whether, number one, if it's still ongoing, because if it's not, then your, your elevator should re- be repaired ASAP. But I think that's part of the problem we're facing right now. So, we will follow up with the labor relations manager, Terry French. He the, represents the companies that employ these elevator repair people. Okay, and, and like I say, uh, thanks for the info on the strike. I was completely unaware of that. But anyway, I just wanted to voice what I had to say about it anyway. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate yours. Thanks, David. Thank you. Take mm-hmm. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, so we will get that bit of follow-up information in your ears. ASAP. Okay, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, still plenty of time left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Fran, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, I'm a first-time caller, but I'm calling about the deplorable situation of our hospital systems here in Newfoundland. Okay. I have an 87-year-old mother-in-law who's in the final stages of Parkinson's. Anybody that's familiar with Parkinson's understands it is a horrible, horrible disease at the end. There's choking, there's walking issues, you can't get up, you can't get down, there's no comfort, there's nothing for you. Anyway, my big problem was I went to the hospital two weeks ago with her in the placenta area. She had horrible muscle spasms. We waited for over two hours to be seen by emergency. Uh, People with a bladder infection were getting in ahead of her. She's almost falling out of the chair. Nobody is bothering with her. My husband went up and said, you know, like, when will we get in? He was told, go sit down. When your turn comes, you'll get in. We left because we just got frustrated. She was in such great pain that we just put her in the car and bought her back home. Well, uh, the other day she happened to take a fall in the bathroom when she went in. She felt her arm went into the bathtub and she fractured it very badly. Oh, no. Yes. And so we took her in the emergency, in the ambulance to the emergency room. She had some x-rays. They asked me how I got her there. I told them we took her in an ambulance because, you know, that was the only thing feasible to do with her at that time. Uh, they sent her to Carbonier, to which she was supposed to be admitted, from what we were told. She was going to be admitted in the hospital for uh, observation and a CAT scan in Carbonier. She got the CAT scan. My husband had been in with her, and he came out, and he said, uh, apparently they're going to send her home. I said, "Uh uh-uh, not this night. They're not sending her home. We live an hour away from Carbonell. This was almost 11 o'clock at night. I went in. The nurses were like, well, uh, what do you think? We're going to keep her here for five or six weeks? I said, no, I don't expect you to keep her here for five or six weeks, but I expect you to give us time to get some things in place. I had no way of taking care of her home. Myself and my husband were the only family she has. We have taken care of her here for the last seven years. I'm not opposed to taking care of my mother-in-law. 
I want to do what's right by her, but putting her in a car and driving her an hour away at 11 o'clock at night just didn't seem to be the right thing to be doing. Uh, They kept her there. They kept her there five days in a gurney in the emergency department. That's where she was, on a plastic mattress, which the lady weighs probably 60 pounds now. So, of course, she's getting pressure pains. Now I called down to the hospital here this morning to see if we can get a doctor to give us a phone call. No, cannot get a phone call till the 19th of August. They sent her home from Carboneer without any medication for pain. She has absolutely nothing, a Tylenol. A Tylenol does not cut the pain of a fractured arm. And no public health nurse, no home care? I, have a, I can get a public health nurse, but she's coming in now shortly. She's coming in to check her. I have no problem with public health because whenever I've called them, they have come, they've dropped it and came. Excellent. But they can't prescribe anything for her. They can't go back to a doctor to ask for a prescription to be prescribed for her for pain. All we can give her is Tylenol. There's nothing we can buy over the counter that's strong enough to touch it. And, of course, we're having to move her because now she's fully bedridden because she was on a walker before. Now she can't walk because she's only got one arm. And so now I'm having to change her. I'm having to feed her in bed. I'm having to do everything. And my husband and I, we are, like I said, we are the only two. We're not opposed to looking after our mother. Uh, It's what I I want to do. I I could have turned around and said, well, hey, put her in a home. I'm not going to do that to my mother-in-law. I want to see this to the end with her. I told her we were here for the long run. But... To not be able to get a phone call from a doctor, all of which takes five minutes. And the girl said to me today when I called down the receptionist, well, you can put her in there and bring her here. That's all I can tell you to do. I mean, you're met with attitudes every which way you turn here. I don't think it was asking too much for a doctor to call me to prescribe a pain pill that I can go to the drugstore and pick up for her. She should be able to have some kind of comfort in her last... I mean, Patty, I don't know that she's even going to make it a month anymore, but I think she should have a little bit of peace and comfort in the last of her days. Of course, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, my goodness, when things are so severe, it's hard for me to really know what to say, but the... Patty, the... you can go down to this hospital down here. My husband was down here Friday. You can go down to this hospital here, and there's hardly anybody in there. There's hardly anybody in there. You can go down. They want you to have an appointment to go get blood work done. You can go down and there's nobody in line for blood work. But yet you got to wait 10 days to get your blood work done. There's nobody there. So, like, I don't understand it. Why we have to wait to get a blood work or get an x-ray or get a prescription or anything like that. When you go down, you're not overworked. My sentiment right now, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe I should never say this, but I'm going to. My sentiment is they have, the health care system has done so little the last two years in local hospitals like ours that now they don't want to do any more. They're only doing the bare necessities. And right now, that's not taking care of our seniors. That's not. Our seniors are throughout, like you do the, the bath water. Throw it out when you're finished with it. And I can say that honestly, from the, the attitude my mother-in-law has gotten served up to her the last two times, 
I was sitting in there when ladies came in after we came in with her with muscle spasms. Two ladies came in, both of which had a bladder infection. They got in to see the doctor before we got in. We ended up leaving the hospital because of the, the heck that was going on there. Yeah, I, I can't say anything about the triage approach taken that day when you and your mother-in-law were there. And I, I was just about to, you know, so public health is one thing, but just some basic pain management it seems to be the most fundamental issue that you're dealing with here now where you can't get any satisfaction. No. I don't know what's next. And you say that you're worried that your mother-in-law won't last, I think you said, a month, which is all no. very, very sad to realize and to say. It is. So, and to, to watch her there in pain and agony is, is hell. You know? Of course it is. And you made mention of uh, days on end on a gurney. That, unfortunately, is something that I have firsthand experience with, having seen a loved one of mine. Uh, being that exact circumstance, which is, is heartbreaking, to say the very least. Um, would you like to say anything else this morning while we have you, Fran? No, I, I just like to see, like, I mean, I have never, ever had anything bad to say about the healthcare system in our area because I'm very grateful that we got it because so many areas now don't have it. But we need to do better for our people in the area. You know, you can, when you can't pick up a phone, I'm not expecting to get in the minute I call or within the first that week I call, but geez, there's no reason that I can't get in before the 20 days time. You know, you should be able to get in before that. 100%. And, and I really think the government needs to look at our systems and say, well, you know what, we're failing everybody in the healthcare. We're failing everybody at this situation. And I really think the government has dropped the ball on this because they, they've become complacent in the health care system. And it's, well, you know, there's shortage of nurses, there's shortage of doctors, there's shortage of this and that. Yes, there is. But have a guess what? The ones that are here should be able to do something while they can. I appreciate you making time. I wish you nothing but the best of luck, Fran. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Pat Collins. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you very much for taking my call, Pat. Uh, we had. A, I just want to just comment and say thank you to uh, the people of the, of the area, Harbor Grace in particular, and all, all over the Avalon Peninsula. We had a, a haunted hike, a heritage haunted hike here. I'm chair of the museum here, and we actually sponsored and uh, carried out a heritage haunted hike whereby... Uh, we went through the town, and uh, important historical figures appeared and came out into the crowd from the various houses and structures that are around town. Cool. And they mostly they were grieved about something, so they were kind of scary, a bit of comic relief at times. But uh, we had Bishop Carfanini, who uh, who uh, they say cursed the town, and he came out and cursed the town. Then we had, uh, of course, this is all done by uh, a, a well-known undertaker here from years past who actually narrated the thing and led the crowd through and and people like Thomas Ridley's wife who grieved about the house that's left there and and different things like that so we had about 300 people who came to Harbor Grace that evening we started around 9 30 it was a beautiful night and it was such a a, a great crowd and everybody was so uh, it, was, it wasn't a hitch uh, unbelievable so Anyway, I want to say thank you to, to the actors who came along and helped us carry that out. And uh, thank you to the board of directors and, and who organized it. 
and the staff, the students that we have here, and our curator. What a beautiful night, Pat. And I had to call just to say a public thank you. People came from as far away as St. John's and, and uh, all around the Avalon Peninsula that night. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful evening. So it's, it's nice to have a, a positive thing happen like that. It's part of our Come Home Year celebration. We had to... Uh, we had to uh, re- reschedule us for various reasons, so we're a week late compared to our celebrations here. But it was uh, was a lovely thing to do. You know, I think the town the town benefited from it by having having such a, an event. Now, we normally have this during Halloween, of course, but we thought we'd we'd do it in summertime for our many people that came home. You know. Yeah, sure. And when it's interactive like that, it brings on a little extra flair. Uh, share one of the specific stories based on whatever character, one of the stories is your personal favorite, just so people know a little bit more about what we're talking about. Well, we start off with, I guess, Thomas Ridley. I'm sorry, with uh, Bishop Carfanini, Enrique Carfanini, who was here in the 1880s, who caused a lot of strife. And, uh, of course, he got sent back to the sea uh, by the local Catholic people here. And uh, he was sent back to Rome uh, because of the disturbance, the way he managed and administered his, uh, his diocese here. And he was sent back. And, of course, it's said that instead of blessing the people, he actually uh, wished the moss to grow on the, uh, on, on the roofs of houses and grass grow in the street. So we start off with that. And then, of course, we talk about the, tra- the stories of other people. So that would be in the, Pat, the, the biggest event for us there. And that, was the, that set the tone. So there were very, various murders that took place here. Not good things to talk about. But we lighten it up a bit. So I think from that point of view, I think a lot of people – were, learned a lot of the history that were here, although in a light way. And I think adding that lightness to the history of it, I think, um, helped uh, get get our story out there. So it was a great fundraiser, too. Over 300 people. Uh, it was a great event. I'd, I'd just like to say thank you to everybody that showed up. It was so nice to see everybody. Terrific. I'm glad it worked out the way it did, Pat. Uh, thanks for this this morning. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in the Conception Bay Museum. Well, we got really good news this morning. Uh, not uh, last month, I've, I've been withholding it from the uh, from the town, but we want to make an announcement soon. Uh, Heritage Canada has just awarded us a major grant here to repoint the brick on our building and uh, redo our windows and and restore the flashing force. Uh, Two hundred and fifty thousand uh, wow. dollars was given was given to the uh, transportation and work, so we'll have to they've agreed to match that cost and. Uh, so we're looking at having to spend almost a half million dollars on this building. We're so happy in the works now. We've had a pre-construction meeting, and we're wild about that because it's going to reinvigorate our building. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I can't say enough a thanks to uh, MHA, Pam Parsons, who was an advocate for this now for the last three or four years, and also to Ken McDonald, who's also been a great advocate. So we're so pleased. As you know, Pat, you might have known that uh, – the National Trust awarded us a, a Heritage Sites uh, Award uh, two years ago, yep. and that really put a feather in our hat, you know, for uh, for you know for maintaining the history of this area. So we have a great board here, interested people, and what we've done is we've opened up the history to people's families. So we recognize the great. John Mon and Thomas Ridley and the great judges that were here, like William Osnope and so on. But one of the things we've done is allowed people to share their stories of their history. Ordinary people like the Collinses, the Williamses, the Sullivans, uh, the Martins. I mean, they, they didn't do great things in the eye of the public, but they were big supporters and builders of this community, our very own. So 
our our museum is trying to reach out to the ordinary people because their fa- their family's histories are just as important as everybody else's, right? So we're so pleased to have this heritage grant, and it'll be. I'm sure Pam Parsons and Ken McDonald will be uh, will be making the announcement soon. It's uh, we've already had a pre-construction meeting, so money is in the bank, Pat, as they say. I'm really glad to hear. It's been great to have you on the show to share some positive news. Thanks for this, Pat. Right. Okay, listen, nice talking to you, and thank you very much to everybody. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here you go. That was great. Uh, let's go to line number five. John, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, John. Yeah, uh, I'd like to publicly thank uh, a good Samaritan who okay. helped me out yesterday on Trans-Canada. What happened? Uh, I blew a tire on my fifth wheel, and he was right behind me, and he went around me and hauled me in, and... He changed the tire for me. He, he did everything. There's still good people out there. So, I mean, changing the tire can be a pain in the neck uh, at the very best of times. But on your fifth wheel, so just one of the so, – do you have double wheels all the way back on your fifth wheel? Yeah, it's a tandem. And uh, and I didn't yeah. even know that the tire blew. I just thought it was the fifth wheel hitched. It made a noise. And anyway, he's uh, he hauled me in, and he, he, he got her done. He wouldn't let me – he said, you stand aside, he said, I'll take care of that. And uh, so I was, I was after having open-heart surgery last year. Okay. And uh, he's a real, real gentleman. Well, uh, I'm his really... name is Lester Sturge. Okay, listen, way to go, Lester Sturge. You know what? I think I might know who that is. Anyway, uh, I'll leave that alone for now. Where were you coming from with the fifth wheel? Where were you camping? Uh, we're camping out in Oxton Pat. Where's that? That's out around uh, Port Braxton. Okay. Wow, lovely. Uh, well, I'm sure that Mr. Serge appreciates your uh, appreciation and your thanks here on the program live this morning. Thanks a lot, John. Good luck to you, sir. All right, thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Here you go. Haul them in. Give them the heads up. Change the tire. <laughs> not bad. All right, David. We play a little Jesse on the way out. Sure, why not? Good show today to kick off the week, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer David Williams, I'm your host Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye bye.